HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the communications director here at Heritage Radio Network. I hope everyone's had a great first week of February. Here in the studio with me, as always, is my co-host and HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Hey, Katie. Welcome, welcome, as they say in the Grape Nation. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> Next week, I'll do hey, hey, hey. That's right. we got to start with all the signature greetings. Guess the host. We are joined in studio today by Michaela Heck and Sam Lee, our wonderful intern team. Hi, guys. And um, we've got also, <laughs> hey, hey. Um, we've got Jordan Werner, our Julia Child Fellow alum. Welcome back, Jordan. Thanks. And as always, we have our stalwart engineer in the booth, Dave Tadashore, who actually just kind of rolled in a hot second ago. Well, we've got a, a double engineer. Today. Well, I'm getting there, Vitor. Oh, okay. The one who's actually right. doing Thank the you. work is Vitor Hirsch in the booth. Because um, David like just casually rocked back up after getting Well, today's special because both of us are here. I know. it. So we so usually only have one stalwart engineer, but we've got two stalwart engineers today. And we're superbly lucky. Double the fun or double trouble? Double the sound effect. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> double the audience applause um, for, yeah, I think <laughs> David's got to make sure that we applaud our stalwart engineers, um, making sure that we all oh, sound hey. great. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. He's back. Um, Hi. We have two very special Hi. guests in house today. Um, they're here to chat with us about Japanese food and drink. First up, we have Frank Cisneros, a highly awarded mixologist and an expert in the art of the Japanese cocktail. He's currently the bar director at Bar Mocha. Welcome, Frank. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is a very good friend of mine, Josh Plunkett. Josh is a professional chef who has cooked at Atera, Momofuku, Luxus, to name a few. Um, and he spent nine months last year cooking in Kyoto. Um, I'm happy to have him back in New York, at least for a little while. Um, and today he's going to talk to us about cooking in Japan, 
his love of Japanese knives and donabi and tea and everything. Welcome, Josh. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we're going to talk to you guys a little bit more later, but first we're going to jump into our HRN headlines. Cue music. I can't headline without my headline music, but maybe I'll jump in. He, he's um, new. He's new. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I'm David just to sing talk the about music. this first one, so I'm going to just like riff for a second because um, we're featuring What Doesn't Kill You this week. On Monday, Katie had on uh, Harvard professor Dr. Walter Willett, who explained the backstory of how American marketing campaigns made milk into a national superfood, quote, unquote, and dove into the potential dietary consequences of milk consumption in developing nations. Um, you know, promoting milk is not without its consequences. But secret insider tip, uh, tune in to Dr. Oz tomorrow, even if it's not your usual thing, because <laughs> Katie Kiefer is going to be on talking about hamburger. Um, I think it's at 3 p.m. tomorrow. So if you have a DVR, set that baby to record or otherwise just uh, come over to my apartment because I'm TiVoing it. Check your local listings. <laughs> um, and speaking of dairy on Cutting the Curd, they featured Whole Foods Big Cheese, their global cheese buyer, Kathy Strange, chatted with Greg Blaze about her 20 years. There it is. <laughs> now we feel official. Um, cutting the curd, talked to Whole Foods global cheese buyer, Kathy Strange, who chatted with Greg about her 20 years in the food industry and her path to becoming an expert in detecting international food trends. Kathy's also the chair of the Cheese of Choice Coalition for the American Cheese Society and a member of the Cheese Importers Association. So if you like cheddar, gruyere, or brie, check out that episode. On Tuesday, meant to be eaten, welcomed uh, <laughs> guest Jen Monroe, whose Brooklyn-based project Bad Taste provokes new ways of thinking about food, from its aesthetic to the inherently political messages of our choices. Uh, Jen thinks a lot about the question, what does your hashtag food porn say about you? Be sure to check out that episode. When Lamon Radio welcomed Chilean chef Victoria Blamey, who spoke about her career path and what her plans are after she's eventually done with her marvelous work at Chumley. Host Mariana and Diego also do a deep dive of Chilean music from the 80s to now. It's not to be missed. And on cooking issues this week, Johnny Hunter of the Underground Food Collective called in to answer listeners' questions about the art and practice of meat curing. So that's just a taste of this week's content. You can listen to all 35 of our weekly shows at heritageradionetwork.org. And now we're going to jump into a couple of events we have coming up. We've been talking about them for the last few weeks, but we're going to talk about them again. Yeah, if we you, are. If you haven't bought your tickets already, um, this Tuesday, February 13th, we're having our Galentine's Day celebration. We're going to be making flower crowns and boutonnieres, so guys and girls are welcome. Yes, guys can celebrate Galentine's Day, too. Also, it's my two-year anniversary, more importantly. Yes, it is, and you should be there. With Thank HRN. You. Two, two years. That's the gold. That's the right? golden anniversary, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> yeah, it's the flower anniversary. Great. We're also going to have <laughs> chocolates by Fine and Raw, which is just down the street. Um, chocolate made here in Bushwick, and we're going to have cans of Ramona, which is a grapefruit wine cooler by Jordan Salcedo. And we just found out a couple days ago that our very own Mariana Velasquez and Diego Senor of Buen Limon Radio are going to be sharing some of their beautiful aprons with us for the event. So we're going to get to wear them while we're making our arrangements, and you guys can come and check them out. Um, space is limited, so be sure you get your tickets on our Facebook page or at Eventbrite. 
the only thing better than wearing one of Mariana's aprons, which are more like gown-like beautiful aprons, is wearing one of her aprons while wearing a flower crown. It's like, <laughs> it's just like almost too much. It's so exciting. I can't wait. Uh, another reminder of an upcoming event we've been talking about on March 22nd, we're hosting So You Think You Know Mezcal, an educational tasting, once again at 100 Bogart, starting at 6.30 p.m., going till 8 o'clock. And it's hosted by SACRED. They stand for Saving Agave for Agriculture, Recreation, Education, and Development. Presenter is the one and only Lou Bank. The tickets are available now, and you can find more information on our Facebook page. Check it out. All right. So now we're going to turn back to our guests, Frank and Josh, um, who have both spent time living and working in Japan. Um, you guys had actually never met before today, but I introduced you a moment ago, and you were comparing like field notes. So... For our listeners, can you each take a turn and tell us a little bit about where you were in Japan and what you were doing while you were there? Frank, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I spent uh, part of 2014, all of 15, and part of 16 in Japan. Uh, I worked at the Mandarin Oriental Tokyo. So uh, they, they're a very culinary-forward establishment. I was there when Noma was there as well. They did their, their pop-up. Um, I think they have, at this point, something like five Michelin stars uh, distributed amongst seven restaurants. Um, so my mission was ostensibly to teach uh, Japanese bartenders about New York City-style cocktail technique. Um, they wanted to sort of expand their horizons. Um, what wound up happening instead was I, it was like sort of like the uh, teacher becomes the student. I just wound up learning Japanese style. Partly because it was interesting, but partly because my immediate supervisors were not too interested in American-style bartending, so they kind of forced me to mold the other way. Awesome. And Josh, what about you? Um, well, I wound up in Japan because I took a job with um, a Japanese chef who was opening a restaurant in L.A., so in like, preparation for that, I left New York and I went out to Japan and spent a month with him in uh, Tokyo, and then we took a trip around... Kind of, we went to Mie and visit, we lived with a farmer for a while and visited loads of like stuff like vinegar makers and sake makers, all that kind of stuff. And then I went to Kyoto and I lived there for about seven months and I worked in a restaurant called Taiho, which was actually weirdly a Chinese restaurant. So it's so weird to go to Japan and end up cooking Chinese food, but it was super cool. And um, it's like a family restaurant. So like the dad was involved, the mother was involved, the sister was involved, the son was involved. So that was cool. And then living in Kyoto was amazing. And then I traveled around a bit, and then I left kind of in like October or so. So. Yeah. Now, Frank, um, we read that you were the only American to be granted a visa to train and work in Japan, specifically as a bartender. Did that happen prior to going um, in 2014, or was that something that you did later? It was like a, a year-long process. Um, the Mandarin Oriental contacted me, I want to say maybe February or March or something of 2014, with the expectation that it would take maybe two to three months to get a, a visa and go over. And it wound up taking us two teams of lawyers and until December to accomplish it. Um, we all underestimated just how difficult it was. I have a sommelier degree, so we tried to get me to go on a chef slash som um, visa program because they do have that. But there was no precedent for, for a bartender visa. So it took us a really long time to navigate that um, process. I wound up having to send like a... Uh, like a phone book sized packet of information to Japan. It had to be 15 years worth of everywhere I'd ever, I'd ever worked at, notarized letters, um, 
every single magazine I've been in, like a DVD of like appearances on different things. You have to prove like beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're bringing something to the table to the Japanese government. And how long did you stay there on that visa to learn? Uh, stayed a little over a year. Cool. Yeah. Has that process, do you think, set a precedent that there might be future bartender visas, or do you think <laughs> that this was like a one-time thing? Um, I know that I know that the Mandarin, after after we went through that process, they are, they they shut down the program for American visas because it's so hard to bring Americans over. But with European uh, with European bartenders, it's a lot easier. They have more of a reciprocity system, um, but I hope so because I think it's a it's it's a great learning opportunity. I mean, I know that it changed my life and my career drastically. Yeah. Um, speaking of learning opportunities, Josh, can you tell a little bit more about what you learned cooking in Japan and Kyoto specifically while you were there? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd never been to Asia before, so when I got there, it was just like culture shock. It was like totally, totally different. Um, and then I'd never cooked Japanese food before either, but I, or Chinese for that matter. Um, the chef I worked for was, he's interesting. He just worked in Kyoto, he's Japanese, but they, they cook Chinese food. Um, so I guess everything was different. I mean, the ingredients are different, the way they handle things is different, the way they cut things is different. Um, I mean, some of the coolest things I guess I learned, like Koki taught me how to do like ikajime, which is like the Japanese kind of way of killing fish. That was cool. Like, I mean, I guess a big departure from cooking in New York was like things would arrive at Taiho and it was alive as opposed to like we get like big hunks of meat and stuff and it's all like dead. So we would like kill things and they would like get frogs in and the like, frogs were alive and like some would order a frog and we'd like take the frog, run out the garage, take a frog and just whack its head off and like butcher it and skin it and all like to order. It was just like it was totally bonkers, but uh, really cool to see that because um, I feel like when when you're cooking in a restaurant you're very removed from like these things are real when they like when something's like alive and kicking like <laughs> you know it's different i mean one of the craziest craziest things was they served sopan which is like turtle so um turtles are they treat it kind of like we would like lobsters or crab whatever like it always arrives alive and you have to keep it alive um so like i'd never killed something so kind of big um, how big are we talking uh, I mean, like they would range in size. So, like, I mean, the biggest, biggest ones, like, I couldn't do. They were just, like, they would freak me out. So, like, Koki would have to do the huge ones. But, like, we're talking, like, like a small dog size. They're pretty heavy, you know? Oh, wow. But it was kind of gruesome because, like, you know, they, they, it's a weird sensation when you, like, if you grab something by its neck, it's fighting for its life. So, like, it's a weird sensation. Like, it's a weird feeling when you realize something's like, so like, you're like cutting its neck and then you have to like cut the top of the shell off and there's like blood everywhere and everything. So it's kind of gruesome. So I guess that aspect, I guess that was a big learning curve. Yeah. What about some of the trips that you took around and visited like the Donabe factory mm. and, and like artisans in Japan? Yeah, I mean, that was cool. Like we went to, we did, I mean, yeah, we went to a load of places. The cool thing, we went to an Omi, Omi beef farm, which is cool, like Wagyu beef kind of thing. That was cool. And they like, feed the cows sake leaves and miso and stuff and they like lacto ferment all the straw and like it was like kind of like a natural farm it was like they were like and then we had like a massive big barbecue uh, that was cool the nabi place was cool like it was in uh, iga just like probably like an hour and a bit from kyoto i went there twice and they they like he's a kind of famous like potter and he makes uh, makes everything by hand and then i, I managed to bring three of them back to uh, new york which is like super heavy but yeah 
Two are in my closet right now. Yeah, they are. And uh, <laughs> explain a little bit about cooking with a Danabe and like why you um, why you want well, to use guess, them. Well, and the what is it? Yeah, what well, is it? I mean, it's like a Japanese clay pot. They primarily use them for like hot pot kind of thing. But like my introduction to it was through a friend Giles, um, who worked, who's cooked a lot of Japanese food, and he lives in Kyoto as well. But um, it's kind of fun. Like the, I mean, the way they used to do it, like they you bring a little gas stove onto the table. And you put your clay pot on, and you make like a dashi inside. Which a dashi um, is? Dashi is like a Japanese, like a like kind of stock. It's mm-hmm. like basically it can be a number of things, but mainly seaweed, kombu, and you can add katsubushi, soybeans, like all sorts of things, flavor it. So that'd be like the base of the the dish, and then like you just literally throw in anything. Like we would throw in like a whole lot of mushrooms, and then like maybe some greens, and like something else and then you like eat a little bit of that it's like cooking and then after that like you would be a whole other stage of things so like we maybe put in like another round of vegetables daikon whatever and then you'd eat that and then you maybe put in fish or meat like we duck one time and then so like the, the broth keeps changing as you're like eating it and you get like kind of it's almost like having like a coursed meal but it's all just from one pot and everybody like sitting around it and then when you're finished like you generally Japanese eat rice with pretty much everything um and we would put the leftover rice in and then you cook the rice into it and you get like a rice porridge or you can like put egg on top and like cook that and so it's cool it's like a kind of all-encompassing meal yeah um frank to someone who has no idea what the difference between american or new york style bartending and japanese style bartending how would you describe that um so i always say that it's uh it's a holistic approach to bartending japanese bartending is um any individual aspect of it done in a vacuum won't make much of a difference, but when you add like the 30 or 40 different elements it goes into it, then you go, okay, this is vastly different. Um, the main sort of tenets are like quietude and elegance um, and a focus on one guest and one drink at a time. Uh, whereas the ratio of like a bartender to guest in the West might be something like one bartender for every 40 or 50 guests or sometimes even more than that. Um, in Japan, sometimes you'll walk into a bar and there'll be four bartenders and eight seats, and that's it. Um, I think it's uh, Katsueda famously said that it's impossible for one bartender to handle more than eight guests and do proper service. So there's a couple of like little concepts that play into that. The main one is omotenashi, which is like a, the Japanese uh, concept of hospitality, and like every Japanese person is sort of. Um, imbued with this thought like from birth and it's like very important that you're that you're a hospitable person as a host and then when you take that to the professional setting it's like pretty next level stuff I'm sure Josh experienced this too that like if you go to like an izakaya which is like the lowest level like gastro pub type place their level of service is like what would be Michelin in the West and when you go to like a Michelin level place it's like you, you've never seen service like that it's just absolutely next level stuff um, so there's that concept. And then another one is like uh, Ichigo Ichie, which is like translates to one, one chance, one, one meeting. So the concept is that every interaction that you have with a guest is ephemeral and there's like a time and a place for it. And you only have one shot to get it right. So it's about going way above and beyond. Um, like for instance, like if, uh, if a guest asks for a recommendation for some place to eat, here in the West we might be like, oh, there's this great pizza place and we'll write down the phone number for them and that's like a really nice thing to do. In Japan, the bartender will literally walk you down the street to the place and buy you the first thing that, that you're going to have and he'll hold an umbrella for you while he's walking. Like, 
it's like just levels of hospitality beyond anything that we've ever seen. That's the most important part. And then there's like technical things too, just stirring quietly and jiggering in a different fashion. Everything is sort of like, um, I think a colleague of mine described it as like sleight of hand magic. It's almost like just beautiful motions. It's about the process of making a drink being beautiful, not just efficient or quick. And everything has to be beautiful. The glassware is beautiful. The lighting's beautiful. Um, in the West, we're kind of focused with just like what's in the drink. In Japan, it's everything else. The drink is just one, one tiny part of it. Does living in Japan and kind of absorbing all of this from both like a bartending side and a cooking side, did that make it hard for you guys to like come back here and like readjust to the crazy pace and maybe not the same type of service that you experience in Japan? I know personally I had reverse culture shock and it was really hard. It took me a long time to get readjusted. The main thing was like everything here is so loud. Everyone's so loud. Um, and uh, and then just things like glassware and ice. Like I, I can't stand American glassware or American ice anymore. Like it's just, it ruined me for it because the level of, the level of quality of everything in Japan, even at, at lower level places is much higher than what we have here. It's just very refined. Yeah, I guess one thing that struck me when I came back to New York, I mean, I'm not from New York, I'm from Ireland, but was was definitely the noise. Just, I remember walking up toward, like, it was like on like 14th and kind of 6th or something, and I was just like, I couldn't believe the noise, the sirens, and just like, there was so much noise. And then one thing that's that they you cannot do in Japan is you can't talk on your phone on the train, which just I just became very used to, and it's a lovely thing. I don't know if you're on the subway in Tokyo and always using their phone, but then like I, I went home to Ireland for like a week or something before I came back to New York, and then I came back to New York, and even to this day, when some I get on the train and somebody's on their phone, I just I find it incredibly kind of offensive now. It just it just annoys me to my like I literally want to go up to them and just explain like just don't do this. <laughs> but, and have you know. so much easier now? Have I tried that? Yeah. Not yet. No, I'm I'm probably more probably too too too. Uh, cute to try and uh, tell someone to do that but um i do yeah. remember when you came was like september that you came back from like your long mm. time in japan and you were like it's so loud here yeah. and i'm like i mean one it's thing it's fine it's brooklyn it's not that bad one thing that <laughs> does definitely was kind of left with me was just the, the japanese have an incredible um ability to like respect everyone else and, and they're 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 selfless in in some ways and that, that they, they all co like coexist in an incredible way just that we just can't even begin to imagine or yeah. try to. Um, Every, everything's also like incredibly clean there. Mm. So just coming back to New York, I was like, wow, this is a third world country yeah. <laughs> compared to Tokyo. I mean, probably New York's probably one of the worst cities to go to in terms of coming from Japan yeah. in terms of cleanliness. Yeah, it's just. But even the way insane. people work, and I'm sure you experience this in the kitchen too, like with, with bartending in Japan, people don't, we don't have, in, in Japan, there's no bar mats. So you know, like, or, or drink rails. So in the West, we're just used to like, oh, some spills are gonna happen. It's just like, uh, you know, collateral damage of making drinks. But in, in Japan, you work directly on the bar top. And if you spill a drop of anything, you have failed. So <laughs> like just the level of, of cleanliness and organization of everyone who works in the food and beverage industry there is next level. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I was in Kyoto, which is like kind of the home of Kaiseki. And definitely, I mean, also I went to like a number of sushi places and the, 
it's almost like a performance, like the because it also the, the the way they work at the bar the bars are pretty similar. Where like your your focus is on one person behind this counter, whether it's the sushi chef or the kaisek chef or the bartender, and and what they do is just pristine. Like the the way even in, in New York and stuff, there's all these like nine pans and containers everywhere and spoons and everything. Like you just you basically don't see anything, and they just produce the most incredible drinks or sushi or food or whatever it is. So Frank, you are now the bar director at Bar Moga. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the style of cocktails that you're doing? Sure. Um, so the first thing that I did when I when I got involved was uh, very similar to what Josh was just talking about, was remove everything from the front and back bar. So Japanese bars are very minimalist places, or kaiseki counters or sushi counters. If you go to these places, like, he, like Josh said, there's no nine pans and spoons and stuff everywhere. So the same with the bar. like. With New York style bars specifically, you'll go and there'll be like a whole row of bitters and syrup bottles, and it looks like an apothecary, and it's amazing. Like that's that's our way, and we develop that way, and it's beautiful. And you have all the tools in front of you because the tools are, you know, you, you want them close by. But uh, in Japanese bartending, you don't want anything to break up the sight line. Like Josh said, the focus is on kind of the performance that's going on behind the bar. So anything that's in the way is is bad. Secondly, as a bartender, you don't want anything blocking your interaction with the guests. So if you have a wall of bitters and juices and stuff all in front of you, then you can't really provide the level of one-on-one -on -one service that you're supposed to be doing. So that was step one. And then um, glassware is really important in Japan. So uh, I collected a bunch of like beautiful vintage glassware. Um, I learned how to make my own ice, like clear ice, the way that they have in Japan. Uh, basically, I just figured out like how the large industrial machines worked, and I miniaturized it. So, like little pumps and tubes and weird stuff to make the ice super clear. Um, and then uh, I vastly expanded the whiskey pr program. I think when I started, we only had two or three Japanese whiskeys behind the bar. Now we have forty, wow. which is close to it should be in the top ten largest collections I think in the West, something like that. Um, before Bar Moga, I was at Uchu. Uh, which is, like Josh was talking about, Kaiseki is a Kaiseki restaurant. Um, and we had about, I think, 75 or so whiskeys at that point. When I left, it's really hard to get Japanese whiskey right now. But as I'm sure you guys know, it's like the, the hottest spirits category right now. It's very collectible stuff. Um, and then aside from that, the, the cocktails all involve um, some sort of Japanese spirits, like shochu, which is like one of my personal favorite things. I spent... Um, about a week and a half traveling through Kyushu, which is the southern island, uh, visiting about 14 or so different uh, shochu distilleries. So lots of shochu. And then uh, just like some fun, like off the beaten path Japanese ingredients as well. Things like kabosu, which is a uh, Japanese citrus, something like a cross between like mandarin orange and a lime. So, you know, just trying to move beyond just yuzu, you know, mm -hmm. yuzu and shiso, like involving some other fun flavors like sudachi, yuzu kosho, like which is, you know, something that you kind of traditionally think is a savory element in food, but you can use it in cocktails too. Awesome. So I think what we'll do is we'll take a quick commercial break, and then after we come back, we'll talk to you some more about the cocktails that you brought with you today. Um, and so, yeah, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned.
Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal. Bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. happening in here welcome back <laughs> welcome back we are looking at a beautiful i don't know how to describe that shape it's not quite a pyramid but it's a diamond a diamond ah. of ice oh my can, gosh yeah it is can, and, uh, and a big knife i can <laughs> all right so frank do you want to just jump in and tell us about the cocktails that you brought wow. and, all, and all the things that you brought sure uh so today uh, i'm gonna make for you our signature cocktail which is called the moga um Moga, by the way, means like modern gal. And it's sort of the, the Japanese equivalent of uh, flappers. So 1920s Japan. Japan had only really been open to the West for, you know, maybe half a century, barely even that. And, um, you know, they were modernizing and westernizing. So uh, they were sort of undergoing the same sort of female empowerment movement that, that we did here in the West in the 20s as well. Um, so... The MOGA was actually created by my good friend Natasha Torres, who's over at Mission Chinese right now. Uh, and it's sort of a, a cross between an old-fashioned and a Manhattan. Um, uses Toki Japanese whiskey, uh, rum JM, VO, and a little bit of plum liqueur called Kaidakuten. So uh, pretty simple. But we, uh, we always serve it on an, on an ice diamond, which I think is a hard thing to describe on the Well, it kind of looks like a We're big glass, pictures. it looks like a big glass, like, ring pop. Yeah. yeah. A oh, simplified like, ring pop. Yeah. I, I, it's I, I so know how, pretty. I know how to do two cuts. Uh, this is the diamond cut, and then the other one is, is gem cutting. And you use a deba, which is like a sort of like classical Japanese um, chef knife. Is that what you call it, Josh? It's De like well, deba would be for fish. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Josh knows his fish butchery. He, I, and I think he knows his knives a lot better than I do. But um, this knife is from Corin, and um, I shout out to Corin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sharpen it every day because cutting ice is like literally like cutting concrete. It, it's murder on your knife. Um, the people that I learned from in Japan, they had uh, they had the same type of knife. And so, just to describe it on the radio, it's like the size of a typical chef knife. I would say, like a little bit more slender. Um, but they had used the same knife and sharpened it every day for 10 years to the point where it was the size of a paring knife. <laughs> wow. That's how much metal you're taking off of wow. it on a daily basis to continue to carve ice. Awesome. 
Um, so, yeah, do you want to, like, demo this and we can kind of talk through it as you go? Sure. Uh, okay. If it's Everything's kind of behind me. Do you need us to stand behind you and show you something? Wow. So, the way that we would serve the drink at, uh, at Bar Moga would be like this. So this is a vintage uh, glass, and it's super thin. Japanese glassware is always super, super thin. And it has these little cuts on the side of, of the glass. Um, it's evocative of a glass style called kiriko, which is cut crystal. Um, you normally see it in really high-end uh, sushi places for sake. They're like these very intricate little cuts. So that's what it's meant to be evocative of. Uh, then we would serve it alongside this little carafe. And the carafe is also, this is uh, of Japanese origin. Um, so it has these little cuts on the side as well, which is also evocative of Kiriko. Um, we, uh, we sort of like pre-portioned it out for you guys for awesome. ease of everything. Um, Qu so I have a question about the glassware. Did you bring a lot of this back with you or are you ordering it? And like, how hard is it to source this stuff? So um, when I was at Uchu, for instance, we had we had an astronomical budget, so we actually flew to Japan and sourced everything. Uh, Barmoga is a little bit more approachable, which is which is fun. We we, we we handle a lot more than the 18 guests per day that we did at Uchu. Um, so my trick actually, and I'm not the first person to do this, is Etsy. Etsy is actually mm -hmm. like a shockingly great resource for vintage glassware. Um, Honestly, like at this point, it makes me so frustrated to like have like thick walled glassware mm -hmm. in cocktail bars because sourcing things on Etsy is not much more expensive. It just takes effort. But yeah. I think that when we talked to Bob Peters in Charlotte, he was doing the same thing with mm -hmm. like Czech glassware or something. And he yeah. was like, I'm finding it all online. So that's a big thing. Um, Slovenian and Czech glassware. Uh, in fact, I, I'm not positive if this is true, but. Um, if you look at Kiriko, which is really only like a 150-year-old or so tradition, a lot of it looks exactly like Slovenian mm. and Czech and Eastern European glassware. Hmm. So it's not, it's not beyond reason to think that that's what, what, what the inspiration is. So you can get beautiful glassware from Eastern Europe that's not very expensive. Yeah. Um, so I just stirred on a large rock, which is sort of a traditional thing. But a big part of Japanese stirring, and it's hard to demonstrate this sitting down, is silence. So... Typically, you'll hear Americans stir, and you'll hear you know, like they're, they're stirring really fast, and you hear this clinking a lot. Uh, the goal of Japan is to be dead silent. In fact, my senpai, so senpai means like um, like your master, your higher up. Um, she used to have a decibel meter, and she would hold it wow. up to our glasses when we stirred to make sure that we weren't going over. Wow. Since uh, we also have the knife on the table, you mentioned that, Josh. Do you have any? Um, memories of shopping or looking at knives in Japan? Um, yeah, well, I was, yeah, there was a guy who, um, he's just, it was near the, the restaurant I used to work in, it was called Shigafusa, and um, most, a lot of the knife shops these days don't, like, make the knives anymore, they just, like, get them in, um, but this guy, actually, he's pretty old, but he makes all the knives, so I'm, I'm left-handed, and for the most part, Japanese knives are all right-handed, so I was able to get two knives like handmade specifically just for me which was cool and I have those now so that's a nice memory of Kyoto awesome alright so we've got these cocktails made and they look beautiful so this particular glass just a little shout out to my friend this is from a shop called Odd Eye in um, it's on 
fifth street between Avenue A and Avenue B in the East Village. Oh, that's my um, Yeah, <laughs> I live there too. Um, my friend Taylor runs this shop. It's all like mid-century modern. So it's another really good resource. I think like, God, I got three glasses for maybe $30 or something. Like wow. again, it doesn't have to be that expensive. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, Frank, for people who don't know, where can you find Bar Moga and when should you go? Sure. Uh, so Bar Moga is in the West Village. It's on Houston and Sullivan, uh, 128 West Houston. Um, you know, we're really, really busy on Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. So if you want to have time to really chat with the bartenders, um, earlier in the week is better. And what we're implementing now, too, is at the counter, the first eight seats, so the bar itself, that's a very Japanese thing, too, is calling the bar. The bar is the, uh, the establishment. The bar top is called the counter. Um, so just like how traditionally eight seats is, is what makes up the, the counter itself, our first eight seats are, is now like an omakase cocktail experience, so no menu. So you come and um, you just tell the bartender kind of what you're going for, and then we have like this whole slew of uh, different ingredients, and we build drinks for you based on your preferences. Does someone want to try the cocktail and give some impressions? Well, yeah. Go for it. You want me to hand it to you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the glassware. It's, yeah, it's so great. beautiful. I just, everything about the cube and like the citrus oil. Is Can I ask so a very basic bartending question? How do you get the, uh, the peel so curly? Um, well, that's another thing too, is that like a big part of Garnishes are really important in Japanese cocktail techniques, so we trim each of our garnishes just the way that we trim the ice to make it beautiful. We trim the garnishes as well, and that helps it curl over on itself. It's wonderful. Tasty. I <laughs> love drinking on the air. <laughs> it how, is how happy hour. How long does it take you to make each... Uh, um, so I, I, I had my, one of the bartenders at MoGa clock me the other day and I can, I can do, if I'm starting from, I'm starting from this shape. A so, big square. Yeah, if I'm starting from this <laughs> shape, I can do it in 25 seconds. Wow. wow. Wow, that's pretty good going. And we can't, we can't really demo that safely in, in this studio setup, but. You should post like a YouTube video or something. Do you uh, hold there's, the, there's the block <laughs> like a clamp, or how does it? No, not... with your hand. Oh my god! <laughs> Do you heat? Is the, the knife heated at all? No. no. <laughs> in, in, in a professional kitchen, if anybody <laughs> caught you catching ice, they think well, cutting ice with a knife, they'd think you were probably insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a little insane, <laughs> to be honest, but. I mean, you're basically holding it in a way that you're minimizing the risk of cutting yourself. Here you go. This Thank you very much. Wow. I'll see if I can kind of show you here. Yeah. Oh, my oh God. gosh. Okay. It's okay. We have insurance. <laughs> I sh I sharpened the knife. Last All right, I'm going to video this. Uh, and this Josh, other diamond, as it's melting, is just so spectacular in our candlelight studio. Josh, did you go to many cocktail bars when you were in Kyoto? Um, well, I had one little favorite one in Kyoto, but 
it was written in Japanese, so I'm not sure it was called. I just have on Google Maps. But I did go to one place in Kyoto, or in Tokyo, you probably know, actually, which is about Bar Gen Yamamoto. You've probably oh, yeah. heard of that one. It's fantastic. Yeah. And he used to work in New York, I think. Yeah, he worked at yeah. Brushstroke. Right. Oh. Oh, wow. And Josh, you didn't really learn to speak the language. Was not, that challenging? Yeah, at the start, it was pretty, pretty grim. I mean, I didn't, like, oh my God. know anything. And, um... It was super hard, but then gradually I got like words and in the restaurant I worked in, you're only doing so many jobs, so you learn how to like communicate and after, it was only after Japan I actually took a probably stronger interest in actually learning and do lessons and whatnot, so that's kind of ongoing. And so Frank is now doing his demo of cutting the ice, which is what you're hearing. Josh, how do you feel about seeing a knife? <laughs> what? Oh, He's done. Yeah. <laughs> what? Everyone's got their phones out. Oh my god, that was so fast. Yeah, well, we have to. We make probably what? fifty to seventy-five of them per day. Wow. So, so we have to do it kind of fast. Do you ever end up kind of in the shits, as it were, doing them to order? Or? Yes. <laughs> Which has gotten us in trouble. That's my, probably when you start getting cut. Yeah. Wow. That's outrageous. Very, yeah, very, very cool. Super cool. Yeah. And there's just a pile of shavings next to this gorgeous cube. Yeah, do you do anything with the with the chips? Yeah, I, I used to do a drink um, kind of based on, you know kakigori, mm. Josh? Yeah, I was just about to say, yeah. Yeah. So kakigori is like uh, shaved ice, like Japanese shaved ice, and they'll generally pour sort of like a, it's like a cream and syrup, cream and fruit-based syrup over it. It's not typically just fruit, right? You no, yeah, I've only had it once or twice, but... Yeah, so it was a drink based on that, so I would save the, the shavings and, and use that in a drink, which is another, like, very Japanese concept called motainai, which means, like, like waste not, want not. Like, don't waste anything. You use everything, which I'm sure you did in the kitchen, too, right? Yeah, but they were pretty good about not wasting things. It was, like, a, a big deal. Especially with, like, a more so... Well, with fish was, like, very striking. Like, they will never... They'll eat everything, like heads and colors and everything, and we probably throw a lot of it out, you know? Yeah. Um, Frank, do you have any recommendations, obviously other than Bar Moga, of where you like to go drink, especially to experience, like, Japanese cocktail style? Yeah, absolutely. I um, I, I highly recommend uh, Bar Goto, which, um, you know, it's. It, I think it's a, it does a fantastic, maybe even the best job of marrying the two styles. Uh, Kenta is, uh, he's a Japanese person, but he he spent all of his time bartending here in New York. So, like, his, his tutelage is very American, but his, his mindset, of course, is very Japanese, and he's watched, like, a lot of videos and read a lot of books and sort of, like, married the two styles, I think, in, in a hybrid of, like, it's the, the best uh, example of that particular style. Um, then uh, Karasu in Fort Greene. Um, they're great. Uh, I actually spent about a year working there when I first got back from Japan, so little plug for my old home um yeah they're absolutely fantastic um in, in terms of of what i think is the most authentic japanese style bar experience right now is probably bar uchu but the fact that it's eight seats and it's a 200 dollars uh kaiseki tasting that you have to commit to before you're even drinking so it's it's a little it's it's a little unapproachable um but yeah, that's why I think uh, like places like Bar Moga, Karasu, and um, and uh, Bar Goto sort of like function in this uh, in this realm where we can bring it to the masses. 
Cool. And Josh, you're kind of encyclopedic when it comes to restaurant recommendations, so I'm going to make you just narrow it down to where you like to eat Japanese food in New York City. Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I feel slightly off the off the pulse for that. I don't know. Um, I'm going to feel disappointed if you don't lead us there while holding an umbrella. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um... I don't know. I guess I used to go for sushi. I was like a big sushi, crazy sushi fan, and I've kind of, not that I've gone off it, but I guess my bank balance started to suffer too much, so I kind of had to give up on sushi. <laughs> but not I don't cheap. know. It's an expensive um, It definitely is. Yeah. But Yasuda is great for lunch. We Yasuda, always Actually, talk about that is Yasuda. one thing yeah. that I always used to do a lot, which is the sushi Yasuda prefix. It's like a total steal. Yeah. They, they don't really tell you about it. You have to like sit down and tell them you want the prefix, and they pull out their little apron, and they give it to you, and... It's like $28 or $29, and it's actually pretty good going. Yeah, for, yeah, for lunch, it's good fun. Awesome. Okay, well, I didn't warn you about this, guys, but we <laughs> end our show with trivia every week, and usually it has something to do with the subject matter at hand, but because we feel like you guys know too much about Japan, um, we decided we would do something in honor of the Winter Olympics starting tomorrow. So we're doing some Olympic trivia. And I'm you're, screwed. you're lucky because you have each other to help and you have everyone here as phone of friends. So, okay. Yeah, I haven't seen the question. Okay, are you I'm ready? My yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they look not ready. <laughs> if it's relatively current about this specific Olympics, I've been reading a little bit about it. If it's if it's winter Olympic history, we're totally oh, screwed. Gosh. <laughs> We'll have to see. Have you okay. guys seen the the augmented reality New York Times yeah. feature about Is like cool? you can walk around Nathan Chen while he's doing a quad and it's it's out of control. I don't know what any of those words were. <laughs> Nathan just Chen doing a quad? Just do it. Yeah. I think Let's do that in here after the show because I heard about this. Yeah, it does look pretty cool. Okay. So question number one. Pyeongchang is the smallest city to host the Olympics since 1994, which were in what city? 1994. No, I was uh, five, five and a half, so I don't know. I think I might know. I wasn't it. watching the Olympics. It, it's it's in Scandinavia. I'll give I know you it. Uh, uh, I gotta be honest. Northern. I, I, uh, I was gonna guess like Oslo. Yeah. But you said smallest, right? Smallest city. I wouldn't have even known. The name of this city. Trondheim. Were it not for Netflix. <laughs> really good guess, I think. Oh. <laughs> Katie, go for it. Original. Well, Katie? I have no idea. Go ahead. <laughs> is it Lilyhammer? It is. Yes. Oh, Hammer. It's actually a really Olympics good show. Nerd. No, no, no. I I just like watch too much TV on the internet. Uh, Lilyhammer was. Oh, it's it, a great band. It's, it's great. TV on the internet. I was hoping for oh, lots yeah. of uh, North Korean related uh, Olympic questions because that's what I've been, <laughs> that's what I've been reading about. <laughs> You're brushed up on uh, that's the yeah. theme for next week. The North North Korean, Korean team Olympic question. All right, question number two. The official slogan for the Winter Olympics is "Passion Connected." What company slogan is connecting people? Nokia. Yeah. Whoa. Nice. There's wow. hope yet. There's hope yet. Buzz marketing for Nokia. <laughs> That's impressive. Wow. Okay. The Olympic ring symbol was originally designed in 1912 by Baron Pierre de Coubertin, co-founder of the modern Olympic Games. Name the colors of the five rings. Ooh, I, I know this because I, I made a series of shots once that was all the colors. And I know you screenshot truths. So and Campari, so green and red. Uh, I think I used yellow chartreuse. Yeah, so green, red, yellow. I feel like it's the black one. 
Yes. There is a black one. Probably one. Four for five. And there's a blue one. Five for five. Yeah, awesome. Good job. I liked it. I liked the way you knew that. That was great. Um, It's on my Instagram, actually. Ah, It's the new mnemonic. Yeah. Um, If you can't remember something, if you need to study, just make drinks. Yeah, that's all you need to do. I like it. (laughs) That's how I've always applied studying. It's like, drink more to know more. Yeah. (laughs) Checks out. Okay, question number four. Jamaica is sending a women's bobsled team to the Olympics for the first time this year. What 1993 movie fictionalized the true story of a bobsledding team from Jamaica making it to the Olympics? Cool Runnings. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to say, feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. In bobsled time. (laughs) Infinitely quotable movie. Um, All right, question number five. Pita, I'm not going to know how to say this name. Pita Tafatafua. That's what I'm going with. Pita Tafatafua, otherwise known as the shirtless Tongan flag bearer from the Rio Summer Olympics, qualified for the Winter Olympics in cross country skiing. Tonga became known as the Friendly Islands for the reception given to what explorer in 1773? Um, same guy who discovered Hawaii. Cook? Yes. That's nice. Uh, That's good sort of job. a food pun, too. I like what you oh, did yeah. there. Good <laughs> job. Good you guys are killing it. Yeah. Okay. What company has a contract with U.S. speed skating to make their suits through the 2022 Olympics, even though they have failed to win any medals with their Mach 39 suits in the Sochi Olympics? (laughs) Uh, American company. American company? Yes. I'm I'm assuming it's like uh, someone that does like, uh, you know, like high end materials, like a, like a, whatchamacallit. Hold on. What sport are we talking about here? Speed, speed, speed skating. skating. Speed skating. So they're I'm supposed a, to be like very a, aerodynamic. Like no resistance. I'm not an speed skating. But <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that the Mach... SpaceX. Those Mach 39 suits were made with Lockheed Martin, but it was like a collaboration with this company. With this apparel it, company. Lockheed yeah. Martin? That's oh, awesome. Oh, it's an apparel yeah. company. It's, a par- is it's it an apparel like company. defense three. contractor so collab? Not- 3M is what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. yeah. It's being called weather. Oh. Uh, it's, like, it's an athletic apparel company. Is it like a... Well, okay, I should... Their slogan is or was protect this house. <laughs> what? Jeez. Uh, I don't know. I only went snowboarding for the first time two weeks ago, so I'm. I don't need to, <laughs> a super now. disadvantage here. Nobody knows it. I have no it's idea. Not, it's not like the North Face. Mm-mm. Uh, wait, so uh, the, Patagonia or some shit. No, that wouldn't be there. More <laughs> Colombia. More like more like cycle this bottle. Under Armour. Oh my yeah. god. I've never even heard of Under Armour. They used to sponsor like a lot of football teams, which what, is why. What house are they talking about? Huh? Uh like the house in the under They used to have a big sign up in the Auburn Stadium that's like protect this house as in like don't lose on the home field, basically. Auburn. I, that's that? my it's in Auburn, Alabama. Have you ever heard of it? No. Okay, question number seven. <laughs> Moving on. Which three countries hold the most winter Olympic medals? Total. Russia. Russia, for sure. False. What? Oh. We, we talked about one of them before. Um, America? Yes. Well, America. Um, America. America. Sweden. No, close. but close. Norway. Boom. Yes. Boom. And the last one? China? 
No. It's in Europe. Oh. Finland. No. Denmark. No. Germany. Germany. Boom. <laughs> we got it. Good we job. Just, we just have to name every European country. <laughs> Good job, guys. That's the end of trivia. You won. I quite oh, like trivia. We can what do we win? Do trivia. Go to Sam's Trivia Night. Plug your trivia night, Sam. Oh, plug my trivia night? Uh, well, it's every second and fourth Tuesday at Roebling Inn on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn here in New York. And now I have one at Strong Rope uh, Brewery in Gowanus every first Wednesday of the month. So if you like trivia, go to trivia. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Frank and Josh, for joining us today. Thank you to the whole HRN crew, Katie Mosman-Waller, Jordan Werner, Sam Lee, Michaela Heck, Vitor Hirsch, David Tatashore. The gang's all here. Um, we will see you next week when we're going to be joined by Eater's National Restaurant Critic and I believe a new Brooklyn resident, Bill Addison. So join us here next week, Thursday at 5 p.m. We'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. HRN Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.